All right, good morning. I think I'm on. I'm just going to talk really, really loud and hope it doesn't get quiet. So one thing my wife always says, you, you talk quietly sometimes and nobody can hear what you're saying. I'm like, well, they should listen harder. I don't know. What you say? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, man, wasn't that just an awesome, awesome time of worship? Mike, thank you. Ben, Joe, Randy, Lane, Ashley, Jim, it was awesome. Uh, this morning, well, we're going to have communion this morning. And um, I wanted to uh, just kind of share with you a little bit of my heart and some of the things that growing up, how I, I viewed what's going to take place today. And, and then over time, how it's, it's changed a little bit. So my, I, I guess if you want to put a title to what we're doing today, it's titled In Remembrance. And I don't have a PowerPoint, so... Um, I just, I can't, like, hold the clicker and my Bible, and I can't use the podium, because then I feel like I have to stand there, and I just can't do it. I don't know. Uh, maybe one day, but today's not that day. So, if uh, you would be so kind as to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 11, we're going to read verse 23, just that little bit there, uh, where Paul is instructing the Corinthian church on uh, communion, and I'm not going to go back into what Paul's talking about. I'm just going to share with you what I feel comes into play when I think about remembrance. Let's read together, shall we? And then we're going to pray. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the God that you are. As we sang this morning, your great name the power that falls in that, and who you are, and and how holy you are, and the earth is filled with your glory. And and Lord, if we just would open our eyes to what you have for us, we would see that all around us. Your grace abounds, your mercy abounds, your love abounds. But Lord, what I want to talk about this morning is this idea about your holiness, and how your holiness abounds, and sometimes we miss it. So Lord, I pray that as we get into your word, that you would just speak through me, help me to be clear and concise. Lord, that we can leave here challenged today. We can say better is one day in your courts. Better is it to stand in your presence than anywhere else. And Lord, let that be our prayer today. We ask these things in your name and give thanks. Amen. So growing up, we did communion um, in my church I feel like once a quarter. So it wasn't every month like, like we've, we do here at Harmony. And I can remember as a kid, we'd come in and it was, it was very low-key. It was very calm very relaxed, very quiet, and the pastor would get up, and, and we would finish the service, and it was usually like, a, like, a, like a, a real heavy, hard sin, 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 and it was, you'd get to the point of communion, and you're like, okay, here it comes, and then what would happen is, um, and some of you have probably experienced this, um, we would do the communion table, and we'd come up, and the, the ushers would come forward. And then the piano player would start playing a song, and he'd say, we're going to have a time of prayer and a time of self-reflection. 
And he would explain through what Paul is saying about what it meant to take the cup unworthy and how that impacted our lives and, and what it meant and, and what it was on a personal level. And all I can remember as a kid was sitting there thinking, man, this is really heavy stuff. And he'd pass out the bread and the, the piano would play softly and you'd hold it in your hand and you'd sit there and you'd pray. And then, you know, they'd do the whole auditorium and then they'd come up and then he'd read that version. And then they took the bread and they did eat and this dude remember, and we'd eat it. And then we'd pray again. And then it would come time to do the cup. And the next usher would pray for the cup. And then we'd pray. And then he'd hand it out. And then he'd come back. And the whole time it was very quiet. It was very somber. It was very, I don't, it's just, I just, thinking back on it, I'm like, man, it just felt so heavy. And then we'd pray for the cup. And you'd hold it. And then he'd come back up. And then they'd pray again. And you'd drink it. And you would sit quietly. And then there would be more prayer. And the whole time, it was great, it was awesome, it was time of reflection, but I remember as a kid thinking, I feel so guilty. I feel so unworthy. I just feel like, like I'm remembering, what am I remembering? The only thing I remembered was how much sin I had that week. And then sometimes I got into a fight with someone, you know, with my parents or another kid in the youth group, and we wouldn't take communion because we thought if we took communion and we didn't get that fight right, we were doing it unworthy. And I can remember after we would finish and the, the piano would play and we'd pray for that final time, the pastor would say, and they sang a song and they left quietly. And everybody left like we were leaving a funeral. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that's the wrong, I'm just, this is my personal experience that I'm sharing with you. And this is how I felt about it. And then when we came here to Harmony, something really cool happened. At one time we did communion and people were giving testimony and sharing and praising and I was kind of like, what are you guys doing? And then, you know, I talked with Pastor Hawko about it and we, you know, we, we, we worked through some things, not, not in a bad way, just questions that I had for him. And I can encourage you, if you have questions for Pastor John as kind of like a plug, ask. He's like, okay, yeah, let me, we, we talked through some things, and I, I did a little bit more personal study on it and thought about it, and I thought about, like, what was taking place and leading up to the Last Supper that Jesus had with the disciples, and how just a few days before, like, they came into the town, and everybody was raving, there were crowds, remember Palm Sunday, and they were, hey, this is the Messiah, he's here, this is going to be awesome, right? I have to imagine that, that that buzz, that excitement, that enjoyment carried on. And I just remember thinking, like, we would leave, and I just, I felt so guilty, and any time there's guilt involved, that's not from God. And any time I had these feelings of worthlessness as I've grown and learned, I've learned that these feelings, these thoughts, these are not from God. So in thinking about and remembrance, what are some of the things that we can remember? We could have a laundry list of all the things that we could remember about what has God done for us. We sang some of it this morning, right? Talk about healing the sick and raising the dead. And, and we could talk about when we do it in remembrance, we remember the gospel. And we remember Christ dying for us. And, and we remember him rising from the dead. And we remember all the things that he's done in our life. And that's what we're here to celebrate this morning. But unfortunately, I think one thing, and this has really been like weighing heavily on me in a positive way, is I think sometimes we forget to remember the holiness of God. And that's what I want to just briefly talk about this morning. I'm not going to take super duper long. We're going to have communion in, in a little bit here. But my, my prayer, I guess, my New Year's resolution, my, I don't know, I, I just, my goal is to better understand the holiness of God. 
But not just to understand it, not just to know it, but to understand the implications that it carries for my life, what it means for me as a father, what it means for me as a son, what it means as a Bible teacher, what it means as a youth pastor. I mean, what does that all mean? Sometimes we completely gloss over the holiness of God because we go, well, we have grace and we have mercy and God loves us, so it's all good. And I'm going to use Ryan. Ryan, a couple weeks back, I walked in onto a conversation uh, they were having in their mentor group. I was get, grabbing some stuff. And he's like, it just kind of feel like sometimes like the New Testament, you know, just we've, we kind of forget that. So today, I just want to talk about remembering God's holiness. And I have a couple ideas and some thoughts that I want to share with you. And the first place we're going to start is in the book of First Peter. First Peter in chapter 1, verse 16 specifically, he says, Be holy for I'm holy, right? That's what he says right here. In verse 16, you shall be holy, for I am holy, because it is written. But if you go back to chapter 1, verse 13, this is what Peter says too. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. And you know, when I think about the implications that this verse has on me and for my life, therefore, prepare your minds for action. You know, I, I like to play sports in high school, and I played sports a little bit in college, and like, this, this makes me think of an athlete, someone who's preparing for battle, someone who's preparing for a game, someone who's preparing for action. Uh, the other night, I was walking down the hallway here at school, and the girls' basketball team was hanging out in the science room, and you could hear they were watching film. I'm assuming, Rachel, from one of the teams you were playing in the tournament. But as they're watching the film, they're breaking it down. Hey, look, this is the mistake you made. This time, if they do this, we'll know they're going to try this, and then we can plan our game plan around that. They were preparing for action, both from a, a standpoint of being an athlete, but what was the point of looking at it? Because you can tell someone, hey, when I watched the game, I saw this. But when you see the replay, you prepare your mind for it. You know what it looks like. You can sense it. And this is what Peter is saying. How can we understand holiness if we're not willing to prepare ourselves for it? How can we understand what it means to take that, that lifestyle of holiness and, and what God is pouring into us and, and how he's shaping us and what he's changing us to be? We've spent the last couple of weeks as a congregation learning about the Ten Commandments. That's to prepare our minds for action. He continues with, Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Be in control of who and what you are. Keeping sober. Not losing focus of that. Not being conformed to our former lust. We talked about this. Jay's here, right? I think I saw him come in. Right? September 18th. Romans chapter 12, right? We just, we, small, small groups plug. Um, if you're not in a small group, get in one because there's some awesome stuff happening. And we just happened, we were in Jay's group last week talking and uh, he's, we were looking through Romans chapter 12 and he's like, oh, I got written down here, September 18th, right? That's the last time I spoke about that. Just the, it was fun. But it helped to call into remembrance what we talked about, what it meant being transformed, conforming to Christ. And this is Peter, once again, telling us the same thing. Look, don't be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance. Ignorance means to kind of be oblivious to something. I didn't know about it. I didn't know it was wrong. Well, guess what? Now we know. 
Man, pastor's going down the line. He's going backwards. Ten, nine, eight. Okay, look, now here's our ignorance. Now we've been faced with our ignorance. Now we can say, oh, that's what that meant. Oh, this is what that means. Oh, this is how it applies to my life. See, there's, there's that wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge, knowing. Now I know wisdom is applying it and understanding it and moving forward with it and going, this is going to impact me in the right way. So when I'm faced with that decision to lie or I'm faced with that decision to cheat or I'm faced with that decision to whatever it is, we go, I'm going to make the right decision. And this is the example of holiness. This is the idea of being set apart for a purpose. I made muscles last night. I love muscles, right? Get it all going. We made the little muscle aquarium. Do you get, anybody know how to prepare muscels? You got to let them soak in some cold water with some flour and cornmeal so they eat it, and then they spit out all the garbage and nastiness. Um, unfortunately, I didn't let it sit quite as long as I should have, so some of them were kind of gritty. But for that point in time, they were set apart with a purpose. I put them in this, well, my wife did, she put them in this big pot of water, and we stirred them up, and I got too anxious. I was like, I want to eat now. So we started cooking. I, they had a purpose. They did not, all of them, serve their purpose in full because... When you bite down on something and it's like sand in your mouth, you're like, this is not the purpose I had for you. I, I, (laughs) you get what I'm saying? So when we look at God, a holy God, and we go, yeah, but God, you know, I know you got a purpose. He said, no, this is not the purpose I have for you. Be like the holy one who called you. Be holy yourselves. Also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God has set himself apart. He is righteous, yes. He is perfect, yes. He is all-powerful, yes. But he has called us to partake in his holiness. To be set apart for purpose. This is also kind of echoed in the book of 1 John. If you look there with me real quick, chapter five or chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. And this is a sermon that John has written to the church. uh, Wherever this church may be, uh, it's, it's kind of split. There's some people that have walked away, and they're kind of preaching this false doctrine now. And here's John trying to rebuild them and trying to pick them back up and say, look, don't forget what we've taught you. Don't forget what we've experienced. And as this book opens, John says what we've touched, what we've felt, what we've been with, what we've participated in. This is the message that we give to you, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. That is the epitome of absolute holiness. His light. Understanding what that means, how we could talk, well, light reveals and light keeps us safe and light guides and directs. Excellent, because that's what it does. 
But when we're talking about light in terms of God's holiness, what it says is there is nothing, no darkness, no sin. There is nothing that God can come into fellowship with. There is nothing that God can come into contact with. And we go, I wonder why God's not working in my life. No offense. Maybe there's some darkness that's gone unchecked. Maybe there's something that's hindering us from being able to experience God in the way He's created us for because we decide this is a little bit cooler. This is a little bit more important. This, I don't, whatever. Maybe it's fear. Maybe, I, whatever. But hey, John says, hey, God does not fellowship with darkness. Man, I, I'm not getting along with my wife at home. My kids hate me. My boss doesn't like me. Hey, do you know what else he says? When our fellowship is right with God, that's what he says. Then we have fellowship with one another. See, it all goes back to partaking and understanding the holiness of God and being a part of that and letting that pour into our lives. And as, as we, we move through quickly, like I said, I don't, I don't want to keep everybody here for too long. One of the things that Pastor used as an example, and I'm going to use it again because it's an amazing example, is Isaiah in chapter 6. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, he says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I wonder if they sang it like we did. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Isaiah understood where he stood in the presence of an unclean God. It's more than just, Whoa, is me. Whoa, I'm undone. I'm unclean. Okay, yeah, we get that. But does Isaiah understand something that we don't sometimes? And that's this. When something that is unholy stands in the presence of God, God has every right, opportunity, and chance to destroy it. That's what Isaiah realizes. It's not just that he recognizes his sin... It's that he recognizes that because of his sin, because of his unholiness, because of where he is, his unclean lips, his unclean heart, he lives in a a village, a town, a city, a world where it's unclean. He realizes that because of this, God, you are holy, you can't communicate with it, you can't fellowship with it, and you have every right to destroy me. Woe is me. Now, what if, what if, what if we took that and said, God, wow, I am unclean. Reveal in me what it is that needs to be purified. Because we have two responses here. We have the response that Isaiah has standing in the presence of God. He stands at him. He looks at him. And he says, I'm unclean. I shouldn't be here. I'm afraid for my life. And then we see God's response. The seraphim comes over and just touches his his lips with the hot coal. And his iniquities are forgiven. Because the holiness of God offers forgiveness. 
Because the holiness of God pushes us in our lives. Peter says it. Paul says it. John says it. James says it. I'm starting to pick up a theme here. The message is consistent. The message is the same. One of my favorite passages of Old Testament Scripture is in Ezekiel chapter 47. And if you're filling in your note cards, this is the visions. Isaiah has a vision, and Ezekiel has this awesome vision. And I'm going to read it in chapter 47 of Ezekiel. He says, Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under the right side of the house from south of the altar. He brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the gate excuse me, that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits. He led me through the water, water, the water reaching the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not ford for the water had risen enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then he said to me, These waters go out toward the eastern region and down into Arabah. Then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea. And the waters of the sea become fresh. It will come about that every living creature that swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there, and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to Engliam. There will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. And this water that comes out and flows down. And some scholars will say it's the Tiberias River or it's the Dead Sea or it's this sea. But the picture still remains the same. This water comes out and it flows. It, it, it trickles and then it gets deeper and it gets deeper and it gets deeper and it gets to the point where Ezekiel and his vision, he can't afford it. it. It becomes too deep to swim. It becomes, But what it brings is it brings new life. And it brings enjoyment. And it brings satisfaction. And it flows down. And if you think, if you know anything about the Dead Sea, what grows in the Dead Sea? Nothing. Salt. And lots of salt. It's like its water is poisonous if you drink it. Uh, It could be deadly. But here's this vision. Here's this idea. And the water can symbolize the gospel. It symbolizes Christ and how it reaches out and it spreads from one to the next. And in that, we have a newness of life. And in that, we have new creation. And in that, we have something that sustains us. And it talks about how the trees are growing up on the waterbeds. And the fish are so plenty that the fishermen are like, hey, we're going to go fish this place. And we're going to catch fish. And we're going to throw our nets. And listen, the gospel, holiness, if we could understand what this means in our lives, we could be these flowing waters. 
We can be these people that are understanding God. First, it's a little bit deeper, and it gets deeper. And then the further we go with God, the closer we get to Him, we're just flooded by this living water. It blows my mind. But I can't get out of my own way to enjoy it. The, I guess the third point is um, having a changed life. Understanding Isaiah, looking at God and saying, I'm unclean, this is where I stand in, in, in view of you and how this impacts my life and how Ezekiel sees that this water has come down and everything that this water touched, it changes. And it brings new life. And I, I look through the book of John. Anytime... Christ comes into contact with someone's life, it changes. Anytime that we stand face to face in front of a holy God and allow Him to work into our lives and we recognize our position and where we stand and what we are, something changes. It's either really good or it's really bad. And you can remember, you know, in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, they come and they're standing in the presence of God and they make one little lie and they're struck dead. Why? Because God's saying, I'm still that holy God of the Old Testament. I'm still powerful. I'm still strong. And I still expect a level of respect, of humility, of honesty, of commitment. And you go back through the Old Testament and why Israel was judged because of their sin and because of their lack of holiness, their lack of taking it serious. The entire book of Judges can be summed up in one verse. And I'm pretty positive it's the last verse of the book. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's our society. That's our world. That's our home life. Here we can be different. Here we can be holy. Here we can be set apart with a purpose. But once we shut the door in our cars, that all changes. I'm not, I'm not, innocent, I'm not innocent of this. I'm, I'm guilty of this. And it's not a time to open up our closets and start confessing to each other. and like, oh, We all understand. We all know. But if we could just take this on a personal level. And if you read through the book of John, one of the coolest things is you see firsthand all the people that come into contact with Christ and how they're changed. And I wrote some of them down in my notes. Nicodemus, he shows up in chapter 3, comes at night. He's a little nervous, scared. You know, he's got a lot to lose. He's a uh, uh, Sadducee, right? Um, he, so he's important. He's a ruler of the Jews in, in some ways. But later on, after Christ is crucified, there's Nicodemus boldly saying, I want that body. I want to take care of it. I'm I'm making a claim that I love this person and that this has impacted my life. And then chapter 4 talks about the woman at the well. And after their little conversation and their face-to-face exchange, she goes traveling off into the city and she's like, guys, you got to come meet this guy. He told me everything I ever did. A boldness to proclaim his message and to see her sin and to understand that this is something we need. The royal official shows up later on. Jesus, can you heal my son? He's dying. You got to come right now. Jesus says, Well, everybody, you just want a sign. You're not going to believe until you get a sign. And he says, Yeah, but come right now. And Jesus says, Go, your son's going to live. He strengthened his faith, he strengthened his commitment. 
the man that Jesus heals on the Sabbath, the blind man that Jesus heals after he encounters the woman who's caught in adultery. And he sends her off and he says, look, yeah, you're a sinner. Yeah, you deserve to die. Yeah, you stand in condemnation, but I forgive you. So please go and sin no more. Go and serve the purpose with which you were created. This is what he's telling her. And then he runs into the blind man and he heals him of his blindness. And the, 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 the Pharisees are all freaking out. And the guy's like, look, I, look, yesterday I couldn't see, today I can see. It's, it is what it is. And then they bring his parents in. Did you say, hey, he's old enough, go ask him. And the guy's like, I just, I want to know who this Jesus is. And Jesus comes back to him and he sits and he talks with him. And he's like, so you can see. He's like, yeah, I can see. This is awesome. Yeah, this is great. And he says, I just wish I knew who the Lord was. And he's like, that's me. And he has this face-to-face encounter and it's life-changing. Lazarus, I mean, that's a pretty easy one, right? (laughs) What about guys like Thomas and Peter, right? Thomas, a great guy. I'm Thomas sometimes. I'm also Peter sometimes. Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick and he's hanging out. He's waiting. And then they decide it's time to go, right? He gets word Lazarus is dead. And Thomas is like, well, I guess we got to go back. They're going to kill us anyway. So let's go with Jesus and die. (laughs) That's me. The same guy that's like, Jesus is alive? Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. That's what he said. I want to see the nails in his hands. I want to see the hole in his side. I don't believe you until I see it. And, And then Jesus says, hey, look, not only can you see it, but go ahead and touch Thomas, I'm restoring you. Thomas, I understand your unbelief. Thomas, I understand your lack of faith. But listen, my holiness overcomes that. It's the same thing with Peter. And it's the same thing that can happen in us. And um, I'm just going to go through the back page here, and we're going to close. In my uh, junior class, right, Connor? We are reading a book by A.W. Tozer. Um, called The Pursuit of God. And I just, um, this week we were talking about chapter 3, and the whole concept in chapter 3 is removing the veil. And if you've never read this book, it's a great book, it's a challenging book, it's a fun book, and every year that I read it, I always get something new out of it. And I always get something different. And, and this year it's been a lot of fun because we're talking with the junior class about it and hopefully it's having some kind of an impact on them. But in this chapter 3, uh, removing the veil, and, and Tozer, he, he talks about uh, how the veil existed between God and man and you had the temple and you had to have sacrifice and it goes through and it explains how with Christ that veil is no longer there. But there's a new veil that has come to be. And this is some of the things that he says. He says, The world is perishing for lack of the knowledge of God, and the church is famishing for want of his presence. The church waits for the tender voice of the saint who has penetrated the veil and gazed with inward eye upon the wonder that is God. And yet, thus to penetrate, to push in sensitive living experience into the holy presence is a privilege open to every child of God. 
And that's just as a snapshot to kind of talk about what's going on here. He's talking about how we as individuals and the church as a whole, we are lacking, we are, are in famishing, we are in want, we stand in need because we have not experienced what it's like to stand in the presence of God. Why? Because if we remember His holiness and what that implies to our life, realistically we can't. But he goes on to say in that next quote, we, we basically rely on other people to experience this for us when we can experience this ourselves. But the question that he starts to present as you get through the second half of the chapter is what is it that keeps us from experiencing this experience, experiencing this experience on a personal level? This is what he goes on to say. The presence of a veil in our hearts, a veil not taken away as the first veil was, but which remains there still shutting out the light and hiding the face of God from us. It is the veil of our fleshly fallen nature living on, unjudged within us, uncrucified and unrepudiated. It is woven of the fine threads of the self-life, the hyphenated sins of the human spirit. They are not something we do, They are something we are. And therein lies both their subtlety and their power. Self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. Us. My self-righteousness. My self-confidence. My self-pity. My self-preservation. My self-love. That's what he goes on to list. And he talks about how they turn from these little individual sins and they mature into something bigger. Egotism, exhibitionism, lashing out in anger. And the list continues and it goes on. Why? Because we're not willing to judge ourselves as we stand before a holy God. These are the accepted behaviors that become acceptable in our personal life, in our family life, and that bleeds over into our church life. We accept it from each other. We accept it from our kids. We accept it from our leaders. We accept it from our church leaders. And we look at it and we go, it's business as usual. I can't remember off the top of my head when this book was written, but it was written a pretty significant time ago. But what this says to me is the more things change, basically they stay the same. When when are we going to have our Isaiah moment? When are we going to wake up and just say, you know what, I'm unclean? When are we going to experience like what Ezekiel experienced as he's walking out in this water and seeing this life changing around him? When are we going to take it for real? That's a personal question. My idea for in remembrance this morning as we shift to communion is, is simply that, remembering we stand before a holy God. And I'm going to invite Mike to come back up. He's going to play a little bit. And while the people who are serving are coming up, We'll just take the next couple of minutes. And I really think it's important to have a time of self-reflecting prayer. And I'm not saying now it's a time of open confession and run across the aisle and find the person that you're angry with and hug them and love them. And how about we just spend the next couple of minutes just praying about how we can experience the holiness of God in a personal way. Not just to experience it, but to let it bleed into our life. To let that water flow into us and then back out of us so that we can be the lights we need to be.